All right, if you've got your Bibles, open to Revelation chapter 10. I'll just pray and we'll make a start. Father, I thank you for all the people, Lord, who are here today. Lord, we're all very precious in your sight. And Lord, we're all loved by you. And Lord, you're just drawing us to walk closer with you. That's your will for our lives, to abide with you. And as we do that, everything else just falls into place. So I pray that you help us to be in our word and, and prayer so we can learn more about you, so we can love you more, so we'll be more willing and more wanting to obey you. And then we'll be abiding in you, walking with you, and experiencing that Holy Spirit, that the love, the overflow of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we are surrendered to your will and walking according to the power of your Spirit. And we'll bear fruit for you, for your kingdom. So help us, Lord, to get to that stage, Lord, where we're walking in the power of the Spirit and we're characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is chapter 10 today we're doing, but I'm going to just have a little step back into something we talked about last week, which is euthanasia. And it's something that was mentioned in our prayer today. It's the laws that have been made in our country. And it's also called VAD, a Voluntary Assisted Dying. And I found out last night when I was looking it up that VAD, or euthanasia, or assisted suicide, is lawful in Victoria in limited circumstances, and it will commence in Western Australia on the 1st of July 2021. So. This is where our culture is going. So I wanted to just touch on this just for 10 minutes or so. And so the verse that really speaks about this in Revelation is chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And it says, in the context of the trumpet judgments, this is one of the trumpet judgments, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. So these are those demonic locust-type creatures. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. So, the common argument goes like this. People have the right to die with dignity, and that's the line that the politicians will put out there. And did you realise that some proponents of assisted suicide point to passages like the one we just read and say that our God is mean-spirited. Why else would he allow people to be tormented, stung by demon scorpions, and unable to put an end to their pain? It's an interesting question, isn't it? So is it true that God is mean-spirited? Like as we see here in chapter 9 of Revelation, is it true that God is not acting out of love when he refuses to let them die when they want to? And are we as believers hard-hearted and calloused when we do not agree with the majority of the people in our country who maintain that a person has the right to determine the time of his own death? So, the verses in Revelation 9, 5 and 6, they tell us that God does not want people taken out of their tribulation so readily. So, why? Now, what I want to do is go through a story in the Old Testament. It's Saul. And there's an example here of assisted suicide in Second Samuel chapter 1. 
and we'll see what the Bible says about it. So as a quick summary of the story, to get the context, so the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are winning. Saul is wounded on the battle at Mount Gilboa there. And Saul's like laying on the ground and he says, kill me, to an Amalekite who's passing by. The Amalekite did so and then rushed to tell David the news, thinking David would be thrilled that he could now ascend to the throne or you know, become king and not be chased around by Saul anymore. But David looked at this man and cried, How could you touch the Lord's anointed? The implication being that he had interfered with God's plan, and David ordered him executed on the spot. And that's all in Second Samuel chapter 1. So what I'm going to do is just read a few of those verses, 6 to 15. So Second Samuel chapter 1, verse 6 to 15. So now you've got the context of the story. This fits into that. The man answered, the Amalekite, talking to David, I happened to be on Mount Geboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the enemy chariots and charioteers closing in on him. When he turned and saw me, he cried out for me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. He responded, Who are you? I am an Amalekite, I told him. Then he begged me, Come over here and put me out of my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. Sound familiar? So I killed him. That's the language. I killed him, the Amalekite told David, for I knew he couldn't live. That's his justification. He's going to die anyway. What's the point? What's the problem? Then I took his crown and his armband, and I brought him here to you, my Lord. Then it continues in verse 11. David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. They mourned and wept and fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the Lord's army and the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, the Amalekite, Where are you from? And he replied, I am a foreigner, an Amalekite who lives in your land. Why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one? David asked. Then David said to one of his men, Kill him. So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. Verse 16, listen to this. You have condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confessed that you killed, murdered the Lord's anointed one. So, let's just take a look at this. Notice Saul's words in verse 9. Come over here and put me out of my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. And the Amalekite's response, so I killed him, for I knew he couldn't live. That's basically the justification for assisted suicide today. King Saul didn't want to live anymore because of the terrible pain he was in. And the evil Amalekite, an enemy of Israel, a very evil culture, didn't see anything wrong with taking Saul's life and justified his murder by saying that Saul wouldn't have lived much longer anyway. And then we notice David's response in verses 11 and also 16, it says, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they heard the news. And then verse 16, you have condemned yourself, for you have confessed that you killed the Lord's anointed one. So it wasn't like, oh, well, yeah, we understand, you know, he was going to die anyway, you did a merciful thing. No, it was nothing like that. So the Bible is very clear on this subject that 
assisted suicide, euthanasia or VAD, voluntary assisted death, however you call it, is plain and simply wrong. So I'm going to give you two biblical reasons why it's wrong. All right. So the first verse is Job 14 verse 5. It says, God has established the day of our death. That's the point of this verse. All right. Job 14 verse 5 says, You have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live. We are not given a minute longer. That's a revelation, isn't it? God knows the very days of our lives. And Psalm 139 verse 16, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. So God has laid out our days. He knows how many days we have. But people say, oh, it's my body. I have the right to do whatever I want. (laughs) No, (laughs) that is not true. Do you know why? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, aside from the fact that God created us and he owns us, but he's also purchased us. He's also bought us back. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Your body is not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So it's very clear. We do not have the right to take a life because it belongs to God. Now the second reason has to do with the reason for suffering. I want you to think about this. We are most concerned about our present comfort, but God is most concerned about our eternal well-being. Does that make sense? We're most concerned about our present comfort and what our situation is. God is more concerned about our eternal state. So think of the people in Revelation chapter 9 that if God had given them the right to die, (laughs) if God had allowed assisted suicide and stuff like that, they wouldn't have heard the gospel, or they would have missed out on opportunities to hear the gospel. This was God getting their attention and wanting them to repent. That's his purpose. As we studied last week in Revelation 9, he's doing all this judgment to call people to repentance. So, if God had allowed them to just kill themselves, then all those people would have died early and they would have missed out on opportunities to repent and come to know the Lord. So the world says, and it says this in the scriptures too, in a negative sense, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And if you can't eat, drink and be merry, then die today. But this is a lie because we don't die tomorrow. We move into eternity. And I've got a quote here from John Corson. It's the loss of a loved one, the struggle with cancer, the dealing with depression, the aging of the body that causes people to say, I had better develop a relationship with God or I'm not going to make it through this tribulation. In so doing, they are strengthened and deepened. The people you admire the most, the people who impact you the greatest, are undoubtedly those who have gone through the fellowship of suffering. That's Philippians 3.10. And consider the following example. You're going through the bush, and you know how butterflies are produced. Caterpillar spins a cocoon, it wraps itself up, and then it has this metamorphic change. Then 
when it's time, it has to struggle out of the cocoon. Now, in that struggle, the wings of the butterfly pump up with fluid and then it can fly. But if you see the butterfly just with its head popped out and it's really struggling, you think, well, I want to be merciful to this butterfly. I'm just going to get my pocket knife and just cut down the side of the cocoon and then the butterfly just drops onto the ground. It'll soon die because it can't fly. It needs that struggle for its wings to be developed so it can fly. So, you know, we think we've saved this butterfly from the struggle and pain of breaking out of his cocoon, but now look at him, he's dead. Because the wings of the butterfly are strengthened only through struggle. So in robbing the butterfly of the opportunity to struggle, you've also robbed it of the opportunity to fly. So we can apply that to our friends and family who are suffering and dying. Okay, I'm just trying to put her out of her misery, someone might say. But there's a struggle going on in that person's soul that will cause her to fly eternally. God is doing something not for this life, but for the next life. And we have no right to interfere with what God is doing. And with some of the dementia, you might say, but he knows so little. But you don't know what God's doing in their soul. That person belongs to God. That soul belongs to God. Now, I'm not saying that we should sustain life when the time to die arrives, but to assume that we have the right to shorten a lifespan is biblically and morally wrong, and that's the point I want to make today. Another quote from John Corson, Life is an easy gang. There are sad times, there are struggles, but don't short-circuit them because those times will make you rich in heaven. It's all about eternity, precious people. Don't lose sight of that. There are bigger issues than comfort and ease and freedom from pain. Be wise in these last days. So, that was a little aside. Now we get into chapter 10. So last week we covered chapters 8 and 9 and we saw everything in heaven simply stop at the start of chapter 8 after the seventh seal was opened and the prayers of the saints were ascending to the throne of God and it was time for all those prayers of how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge the world and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So Revelation 6.10 says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the world has a lot to answer for as it continues even to this very day to persecute the people of God. They killed the prophets in the Old Testament. They're killing the Christians today. So just to quickly revise where we're at, the rapture in chapter 4, Jesus takes a scroll in chapter 5, and the first seal is opened in chapter 6. That's when the Antichrist is revealed. So we could say that the tribulation starts in chapter 6. And the chronology of the book of Revelation is carried forward by three sets of judgments. The first set is the seal judgments, and the seventh seal judgment opens up like telescopically the, what's the next set of judgments? Trumpet judgments, that's good. And then the last of the trumpet judgments opens up the last set of judgments, which is the, the bowl judgments. And, and at the end of the bowl judgments, Jesus comes back. And the seal judgments are called the, the fourth judgments because everything's by fourth, like a fourth of mankind was wiped out. Everything was done in fourth. And the 
trumpet judgments, everything was done in thirds. So it's getting more severe. So let's have a look at this. It says, just running through the trumpet judgments we looked at last week. The first one was a third of the trees destroyed and all the grass and the grain. The second one was a third of the seas or oceans struck or destroyed. The third one, third trumpet judgment, a third of the freshwater sources struck or poisoned. And the fourth trumpet judgment, a third of the heavens struck, the sun, moon and stars partially darkened. And the fifth one, the locusts from the bottomless pit caused torment for five months. And then the sixth one, the four angels from the Euphrates River and the demonic army of 200 million that killed one third of the remaining people. So now we come to chapter 10. And it's a vignette, it's a story, it's an explanation of people, events, and organizations that play a role during the tribulation. So not all the chapters in Revelation carry the story forward. Some of them explain who the people are who are in the tribulation. So basically what happens is a mighty angel proclaims Jesus' imminent return, declaring that the earth would soon be under new divine management and that all prophecies will be fulfilled. And you can see Daniel 9.24. Also, John is given the little book or the scroll to eat. A little book, a little scroll to eat. And it's both bitter and sweet to him. Sweet to taste, but then bitter in his stomach. So you could think of that as sweet promises of salvation for those who believe, but bitter promises of judgment for those who don't. And it's not an easy message to share. So the seal judgments have happened so far. We've been through them. We've been through the trumpet judgments. And all that's left now is the seven bowl judgments, which are orders of magnitude worse than what's already happened. It gets really severe. And it's good to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21 to 22. It says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So what is so bad about the last part of the tribulation? Well, the last seven judgments, instead of being partial judgments, like a third of the ocean was destroyed, a third of the water, it's all the ocean is turned to blood. It's all destroyed. Everything dies. And then all the fresh water is destroyed. And all men all around the world are scorched by the super hot sun. And then the whole world suffers this massive hail and this massive earthquake, the worst one in human history. So, what's going to happen to the earth then? Ecology has been destroyed. How are you going to survive? All the oceans are destroyed and all the fresh water is poisoned and everything green is burned up by the super hot sun. You know, you don't have much of a future. As Jesus says, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. So all these things are preparations for Jesus' return, and that's what the tribulation is all about. At the end of it, Jesus comes back. And what's the word that we use for that? It starts with M. Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. So let's read Revelation chapter 10, 1 to 11. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, 
and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth that are things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished, as he declared to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So to start at verse 1, it says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. So who is this angel? By appearances, it sounds like Jesus. And some commentators actually do say it's Jesus, but some don't. And I'm in the category of saying I don't think it's Jesus, and I'll go through why. One of the reasons is because Jesus comes back at the end of the seven years and not at this point, sometime in the middle of the tribulation. And consider this, when Moses spent time in the presence of God, what happened to his face? He went bright and shiny, okay? So this angel has come from heaven, from the presence of God. It's no surprise that his face would also glow and radiate. God's glory after being in his presence. But the main reason, I think, is the text itself. It says, I saw still another mighty angel. So it's another of the same kind. And it's like the angel in Revelation chapter 8, verse 3, another of the same kind. There's only one Jesus, and there can't be another of him, another of the same kind. Now, some have suggested that this angel is Michael. And if you look in Daniel chapter 12, Verses 1 to 6, it tells you that Michael the Archangel will be involved in this time of history. And these angels are very powerful. All right, so don't think of angels as little things that sit on your shoulder or sit on your roof and just play trumpets or whatever. No, these angels are extremely powerful. Don't mess with them. And the fallen angels are just as powerful as the good angels. So show respect like Michael did with with Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. So what does the rainbow represent? Promises of God. So in particular, they promise not to flood the world, but here we can apply it to 
God's grace. In his grace, word was not going to flood the world. And it also makes us think about the promises that God has made to avenge the death of his saints, the promise to return and set up his kingdom, the promise that we will rule and reign with him, and the promise to restore Israel to the land in righteousness and true peace. So it could refer to all those things. And what do the feet like pillars of fire represent? Judgment. Yeah. So this angel is coming down. He's symbolized by grace with the rainbow and judgment with his feet like pillars of fire. So grace for those who would repent and there's fearful judgment for those who refuse to repent. And in verse 2, it says that he had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So we'll come back to the little book at the end. We'll talk more about it at the end. It says that he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. So he's basically saying, it's mine. As Christ's ambassador, he's saying, I'm claiming this for Jesus. He's coming soon. Now, when you're an ambassador, you go in all the authority of the person who sends you. So he's coming with all the authority of Christ. So, and he cried with a loud voice, verse 3, as when a lion roars, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. This is a mystery. <laughs> no one knows what the seven thunders said. We don't know. But there have been people who claim to have visions from God, and usually the cults. And they have these people in their cults, their leaders who claim to have revelations about what these seven thunders uttered. But John was told to seal this, to close it, and not to reveal to anyone. Imagine if you're John, and you've got this knowledge in your head, and you can't tell anyone. Here's an important application for us. Just remember that God hasn't and does not reveal everything to us. There will be times in our lives when God will ask us to walk by faith to trust him, even when we don't understand what is happening or even why it is happening. And we need to be humble and accept that we don't know everything and just humbly obey God and trust him that he's doing it for our good. What he's doing is the best thing for us. So it's really important to get that application there. God will often let us go through times of suffering when we will not understand what's happening or why it's happening. But at the end, we will know when we get to the other side. But for now, we won't. We'll know what the seven thunders uttered when we get to heaven. But this side of heaven, we'll never know. And it's the same thing in our lives. So it just keeps us humble. We need to be trusting him. Walk by faith. Trust him. Even if you don't understand. And moving on to verse 5 to 7. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, 
the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished, as he declared to his servants and prophets. So, in verse 6 it says, And he swore by him who lives forever and ever. So this angel is swearing by God. Okay, Jesus, the Father, Holy Spirit, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And this is further evidence to me that this is only an angel and not Jesus. So I want to show that because if it was Jesus, then he would be swearing by himself because there is no one greater to swear by. So it says that in Hebrews 6, 13-14. For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Now that passage is referring to Genesis 22, when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And just as Abraham is about to plunge the knife into Isaac, believing that God would raise him from the dead, Jesus stops him and speaks to him. He says, stop, and then there's a ram. And, and we'll go to Genesis 22. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. Now, this is obviously Jesus here, okay? And said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord. Because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants. So, by myself I have sworn, I will do it, I will bless you, I will multiply you. So again, the evidence for this angel not being God is that he swears by God and not by himself. If he was God, Jesus, then like in Genesis 22, I would expect that he would swear by himself. So now what is the oath referring to? It says in verse 6 and 7, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. So, the mystery of God will be finished. Now, there's three questions we need to ask here. Firstly, what does the Bible mean by mystery? Secondly, what mystery is this referring to? And thirdly, what time frame are we talking about? So, first questions first. First things first. What does the Bible mean by a mystery? And I've got a quote from David Guzik, which is a, the best one I've found to explain this. He says, In Bible vocabulary, a mystery isn't something no one knows. A mystery is something no one could know, unless it was revealed to him. If he could know it by intuition or personal investigation, it isn't a mystery, because mysteries must be revealed. Therefore, something can be known and still be a mystery in the biblical sense. So, to sum that up, a mystery in the scriptures is something that we cannot find out by ourselves, but God reveals it to us. Now, here are some examples in the New Testament. There's the ultimate conversion of the Jewish people in the end, when the nation comes to God. That's called a mystery in Romans 11.25. God's purpose for the church is called a mystery. We know what it is, 
but we didn't until God revealed it to us. The bringing in of the fullness of the Gentiles is called a mystery. We wouldn't have known that that was going to happen until God revealed it to us. That's Romans 11.25 again. And the living presence of Jesus in the believer is called the mystery of God in Colossians 1.27-2.3. And it's the mystery, Christ in you. We wouldn't have realized that or understood that unless God had revealed it to us. And the gospel itself is called the mystery of Christ. So the gospel had to be revealed to us. It's not something we could have worked out ourselves. So that's a mystery. So now for the second question about this mystery of God is, what mystery or revelation is the angel referring to here? And we get a good clue here because it says that it was declared to his servants, the prophets, meaning that it was something given in the Old Testament. So most likely in this context, the mystery of God probably refers to the many Old Testament passages which speak of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. It's the millennial reign where for a thousand years Jesus physically rules and reigns on the earth. He rules them according to Psalm 2 with a rod of iron which means absolute authority, and righteousness is enforced. There will be no rebellion amongst the nations. There will be peace throughout the entire earth, and the earth will be a paradise, just like the Garden of Eden was. Now, in saying that, individuals are still free to make up their own mind to choose to follow Jesus or not, but there will be no war in this new earth in this revamped, recreated earth that Jesus will fix up for us after we've destroyed it and after the the terrible (laughs) judgments that come through the tribulation. Now, the third question is, when will this happen? When is everything going to come to an end? Well, what's the time frame? It happens in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, so the seventh trumpet. And it indicates will be after a period of time because it says in the days of. So it's not a particular time, it's a process that's going to lead to the end. So when does a seventh angel blow his trumpet? It's in Revelation 11.15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what it's saying is that Jesus' return to the earth to rule and reign is both now inevitable and imminent. It's unstoppable. The process has begun. The scroll has been opened. It's just about finished. And God often speaks of things not yet done as being already done because once God says something will happen, it's as good as done. Once God says something is going to happen, it's as good as done. So, And remember how the judgments are telescopic. The seventh seal judgment opened up the seven trumpet judgments. And here, the seventh trumpet judgments opens up the seven bowl judgments. And in these seven bowl judgments, Jesus will wrap up or complete the necessary preparations that will finish the tribulation period and open the way for Jesus to return. So the days of the angel when he blows the seventh trumpet is basically... In Revelation 15.1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvellous, seven angels 
having the seven last plagues, for in them, what? For in them, the wrath of God is complete. So at the end of the seven bold judgments, it's all done. It's finished. Jesus comes back. It's all over. So it's in the seven last plagues that the wrath of God, the judgment of God on this wicked world is complete, meaning finished, meaning that it's time for Jesus to return to the earth. So in summary, the delay no longer refers to the imminent pouring out of the seven bold judgments, which are the final act in God's program of judgment of this world. And they prepare the way for Jesus' second coming. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So, what is this little book? Well, I don't think it's the book mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1, the scroll with the seven seals, because the words John uses to describe it are different. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly what it is or what was written in it, but it appears that it's basically the book of Revelation. It's the same information that's in the book of Revelation because it says in verse 11, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. It's a picture of eating the word of God, of putting the word of God inside of you. And there's another example of God doing this, another prophet who was told to eat a scroll or a book, and that's in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 and 14. And we get some more insight into why God would ask John to eat a book and then go prophesy. So Ezekiel 3, 1 to 4 and 14 says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So it's all about going and speaking to people about the truth that we've digested, so to speak, that we've taken in. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. And then verse 14. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. I went in bitterness and turmoil, but the Lord's hold on me was strong. So God gives us this message. It's a beautiful message about salvation, but it's also bitter because there's judgment there too. And here are three possible reasons why it's sweet to the mouth and bitter to the stomach. As well as showing God's mercy and victory over evil, sin and death, it also reveals God's judgment on a wicked world, which is a difficult message to deliver. So it's not just good news, it's also bad news. Those who choose not to repent will suffer for eternity. And another sweet, bitter thing here, it shows that some people will be saved and some people won't. And those who won't 
choose salvation will make life very difficult for those sharing God's message. And another more personal application is that the Word of God reveals who we are. You know, there's two sources of pure evil. What are those two sources of pure evil? Yep, there's the angels, the fallen angels. And there's another source of pure evil too. Yeah, the heart of man. I'm looking at sources of pure evil right in front of me, and you're looking at one too. <laughs> All right? I have a sinful nature. It's a source of pure evil. And so the Bible reveals our sinful condition. So the good news is I'm a new creation, and the old is passing away, which is fantastic. But I still live sometimes by the old nature. And the Word of God shows me what is right and what is wrong. So I'm going to read to you Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. So this is an application from this. Personally, for the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, which is the soul and the immortal spirit, and of joints and marrow of the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. And not a creature exists that is concealed from his sight, but all things are open and exposed, naked and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. <laughs> so the Word of God reveals our true heart condition and we might think our motives are great but when you start reading the word God will speak to us and he'll show us sometimes that you know you've got the wrong motive there or you think you're so good but actually you know you're doing this for the wrong reason and it's not a comfortable thing sometimes to have our sin revealed but we need to have that work done in us if we're going to grow and become, become holy and pure so the application the overall application for this eat the book thing is we need to be people of the book. The picture of eating the little book is symbolic for feeding on the Word of God. Think about that. It's symbolic for feeding on the Word of God. We can only proclaim or give out the Word of God if we first take it in. The Word must first become a part of us as we study it, meditate on it, and memorize it, and only then will we be confident and effective in sharing God's message the gospel with those around us. So we can look around and see people who, are, who devour or are consumed by books or video games or sports or leisure activities, but the Christian should be characterized by being one who devours or is consumed by the study of the Word of God. So the new or baby Christian feeds on the milk but then grows up and is able to feed on the meat of the Word. But we will never grow up if we don't feed on the Word of God. So I'm just going to finish on this point of application, being people of the word, okay? People of the book. We need to be eating, so to speak, <laughs> the word of God. So the first scripture I want to finish with is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-3. to It says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people, that is, mature people, mature in their faith. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, 
because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? So, what does the word do? It makes us strong. It purifies us. It helps us to overcome our sinful nature. Okay, I'll just read that verse 2 again. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger, and you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. The word in the New King James is carnal or immature, fleshly. Another one that helps us understand is Hebrews chapter 5, 11 to 14. There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. Do you see how practical this is? We need the Word of God if we're going to be, become sanctified, if we're going to change and become godly people. It's the Word of God that changes us. It's God working through the Word of God. i just read verses 13 and 14 again from that passage. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. And I'm going to finish with one more. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, to 3, and it's from the Amplified Bible. And this is a famous verse. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, yeah? It says, So be done with every trace of wickedness, depravity, malignity, and all deceit and insincerity pretense, hypocrisy, and grudges, which is envy and jealousy, and slander and evil speaking of every kind. Like newborn babies, you should crave, thirst for, earnestly desire, the pure, unadulterated spiritual milk, that by it you may be nurtured and grow into completed or mature salvation, since you have already tasted the goodness and kindness of the Lord. So I want you to notice that, like newborn babies, you should crave. This is our choice. Okay, We, as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, and He's working in us both to will and to do. We choose what we crave. We choose what we desire. We can choose, <laughs> I did this for a while, crave or desire TV. Or it could be Netflix or video games or sports or recreation, alcohol and drugs, sex, fame, a good reputation or money. Or we can choose to crave or desire God. And we will find him as we study or we eat the word. Okay? So I encourage you not to eat your Bibles. <laughs> Literally. Remember, this is a picture. It's like, this is our daily food. Okay? This is nourishment for our soul. And as we study, it becomes part of us. It becomes a part of the way we think. 
a part of the way we live, a part of the way we treat other people. And, you know, it's pretty clear what your priorities are. You just step back. It's a difficult thing to do. Step back, take a look at your own life and see what you spend most time doing. That's your highest priority. And it's never true that we don't have the time to do something. It's always true that it's just not as important as the things that we have placed as being more important. So, the concluding thought for today. The Word of God is God's revelation of Himself for us. The Word of God is food for the soul and will make us strong. And a little warning here. Always remember to pray before you read, asking God to give you understanding. I need to do it. We all need to do it. Why? Because we need to come humbly to the Word of God with the right attitude. We cannot understand the Word of God on our own wisdom, our own intellect. It's a spiritual book. It's spiritually discerned and we need the Holy Spirit to reveal spiritual truth to us. So if we're going to get application from the Word of God, it needs to be from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals the deep things of God. So that's why it's always good to pray, because you can come to the Bible and study intellectually, but it's not going to change you. You have to do it with the right attitude. Come and understand that I can't learn anything from this without God enabling me to understand. And that's the Holy Spirit's role. He will teach you all things. So, Father, help us today to remember your word, to make that a high priority in our lives. Lord, not just for the sake of knowing stuff and having good Bible knowledge, but, Lord, because we want to fall more in love with you. It's all about relationship. This Christian walk, it's all about relationship. And as we eat the Word of God as we devour the Word of God and it becomes a part of us, like that picture in Revelation and Ezekiel. Lord, we start to live what we've been reading, what we've been thinking about. It changes who we are. And we start to be able to tell the people around us what's in our hearts. And not only by what we say, but also by what we do. So Lord, help us to be mature, And Lord, it's just really sad. There's lots of immature Christians out there who don't prioritize the reading of the Word, who don't prioritize their relationship with God. And those two things are one and the same. Our relationship with God is all based on the Word of God because the Word of God reveals the living Word. So help us, Father, to put you first to make the right choices and to realize that it's not by our strength but by your strength. It's not by our understanding, it's your understanding. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.